I don't think anybody really pays attention to what the pastor says he's going to speak on before he actually speaks on it, do you? Does anybody ever even notice that other than me? I, I didn't think so. Uh, I, I didn't think so. This, this, is, this is going to be a bit of a curveball, but not so much. Uh, my, my thought was to preach on Matthew sixteen thirteen. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, which is a word I've only ever heard in the Bible. Uh, But it means money. You cannot serve God and serve money. Uh, this is actually is not so much a parable in itself as it is a comment on a parable. Jesus has just told a parable, one of the most surprising parables he's ever told, one of the hardest ever to interpret. It's, 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 it's such a curveball. There's only one thing in it that's at all redemptive, and that's the one point that Jesus makes with it. Everything else about this parable is a story of rascals. Everybody in it's a rascal. But then he draws from it four conclusions, and, and one of those conclusions is, is this. You have to make a choice. And, and, he, and he, doesn't, he doesn't put it out there as a question so much as it is just asserting a, a fact that we've got to deal with. You can't serve two masters. Either you'll love the one and despise the, one, the other. Your, 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 your heart cannot sustain this kind of divided loyalty between your master and your money. He doesn't say that it's hard to do this, or if you're really clever, you might be able to pull it off, or if, if you're really astute and work at it long enough and take extra classes, you, you might be able to pull it. This, he doesn't even say this is PhD level kind of dividing of the heart that some people can actually, no, he says you can't do it. It's like Climbing a fence that's leaning towards you or kissing a girl that's leaning away from you. Those things don't work. It's just practical advice. This is how life works. And and I wonder if if Jesus himself had had lived that out. I wonder if he had noticed as he was working in uh, the carpenter's shop and and making these... uh, Tables or chairs or, or yokes for, for animals' backs. Or, you know, someone has even decided that maybe his slogan over his shop was, My yoke is easy. You know, uh, uh, he, he was a practical guy. He lived in the real world. He knew that even if you are faithful to your master, that doesn't mean that you won't have to manage and deal with money. But he did say you can't serve one or the other. You're going to have to decide which is your priority and which one you serve. And then he tells this story of one who has incredible clarity about that decision. The interesting thing is that he did not choose to be faithful to his master. But this is a guy with absolute clarity about where his loyalties lie. And they're not with his master, they are with his management of his money. Strange parable. And, and here it is. Starts with the first verse of chapter 16. Jesus is not advocating the character of anyone in this story. Can I just say that as an aside? All the way through, the steward is called an unrighteous steward. The debtors themselves are complicit 
And even the master at the end that makes the judgment that Jesus uses as a teaching tool is himself a rascal. There, there's the only thing redemptive about this story is the point that Jesus is going to make with it. Are you, are you ready? That'll help you. Uh, or you'll get stuck somewhere along the way. Notice the loyalty of the steward and where it lies. Now, he was also saying to the disciples, that is Jesus, there was a certain rich man who had a steward. And this steward was reported to him as squandering his possessions. You understand the nature of a steward. A steward is some, someone that has something entrusted to him for management that he himself does not owe. He manages it for his master as we do our money for our master. So, so here's the story. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be a steward. He was reported as squandering his possessions. An embezzler, perhaps. And in verse 3, it goes on. And the steward said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the stewardship away from me? My position, my influence, my ability to manage as I have. What what shall I do that he's taken it away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. And I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I am removed from my stewardship, they will receive me into their homes. And he summoned each of his master's debtors. And he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. That was the way it worked in those days. If, If you were in debt to someone, it was often... And agreed upon amount of that which you yourself produce. So maybe this guy was an oil uh, producer. He, he made olive oil. And he had agreed to pay a certain portion of, of his oil. A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down and quickly write 50. This steward still has control of the books. 50% discount, my man. And he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill, 20% discount, write down 80. And his master praised the unrighteous steward, unrighteous though he was, because he had acted shrewdly. And here's Jesus' conclusion. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind that are the sons of light. What an incredible story. It's absolutely clear where this steward's loyalties lie, and it's not with his master. His loyalties are, are with his money. He, he, he's never really counted on the favor of his master. He's just counted on the manipulation of his books. He's, he's never been faithful to the master. He's always been one that made his way, trusting his own ability to finagle the funds. His confidence is in the money. He doesn't even defend himself, does he? There, there's none of this, oh... You know, I want to please my master, but I really want to make some funds too. I want to please my master and then I'll make a little money. He, he's, not, he's not even torn. You understand what I'm saying? As soon as his master comes to him and says, I've heard that you are squandering my wealth, that you are an embezzler, that you are taking advantage of me. As he says this to the guy, he doesn't even offer it events. He doesn't say, I'm sorry. It's just like, oh, 
Yeah. And, that, and, he, and, and then he starts thinking. He, he, he's not concerned at all about, he doesn't count on his master. So what does he do? He knows where his loyalties lie. He starts thinking of how he can cook the books. And though he doesn't have any money himself, he's probably squandered it all. He still has the ability to create indebtedness not to his master, but indebtedness to himself by giving these discounts to those who are indebted to his master. This guy is clever. So clever that when his master, who is himself a rascal, sees how clever he is, it's almost as if he... he regrets firing him because if he could just control this guy, he could get a lot of dough out of him. You know what I'm saying? You ever had to manage someone that you knew their practices weren't quite right, but they were the number one salesman in the company, and so, eh, let's look the other way. Here's this, this, this master that even though he knows he's a rascal, even though he's throwing him out, even though he's taking his job from him, even though he's firing him, nevertheless, he says, wow, creative, ingenious. Now, now what, what, what did this crooked steward lose? He wasn't counting on the master for anything anyway, was he? Well, was he doing anything that would make him any more than he was an embezzler? No. The guy's got kidneys. He's thinking this through. He's clever. He's ingenious. There's something about... What a twisted story. But, but there's something about knowing where your loyalties lie that free you up for the next step. Where do those loyalties take you? There's something about knowing where your loyalties lie that free you up for the next step. Where do your loyalties take you? At least this guy understood and would say, yes, Jesus, you're right. He made the wrong choice. He was loyal to money instead of loyal to, to the master. But maybe he didn't have a master like our Jesus. Jesus isn't a rascal, right? So... The point is the, the ingenuity. Here's the problem. The problem is so often our struggling to trust God hearts, right? Want to figure out a way to do both. You know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, I, I want to please God, but God's just part of my portfolio, right? And, and so... And that's often the wisdom of the world. That's often the wisdom even of the Christian world. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus says you, you can't serve God and mammon. You're going to have to deal with money all your life. You're going to have to manage it. But for whom and for what purposes do you manage it? Have you been freed up to honor God with the way you manage your money? Or are we still lost in this decision of what we're really trusting and what we're counting on? Does that make sense? You, you'll, you'll either love the one and hate the other. I, I must say, there must be some of this still undecided in my heart because there's a, there's a part of me that whenever I sense God is asking a new sacrifice of me, a new level of giving, there is part of the humanness of who I am 
that almost wants to say, God, what business is it of yours? Something inside, something very, it sounds like a childish whine within my heart that starts going, mine, mine, you know? It, 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 it's, 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 it's natural to who we are. And, and, it's, and sometimes I, I wonder if, what would happen? What would happen if we were freed up by that decision to be completely occupied, ingenious, obsessive about where that loyalty led us? You follow what I'm saying? Jesus, in this parable, says it's a shame that only those who are loyal to themselves are really free to fully embrace and follow where that loyalty leads them. What would happen if the sons of light were so freed by their choice to honor the master that they themselves were as free as this kind of crook and rascal to follow the implications of where that leads None of that was in the notes. I have no idea. Choose who you serve. This may be the first and the most elemental of those choices. If we do, then that frees us up for the next step, which is how you serve. If, if, if we're still lost in this tension of where our loyalties lie, it's easy to be someone who gives to give just enough. Right? I, I will give to the point that qualifies me to stop giving. This was the nature of the Pharisees. This is the nature of the human heart, is it not? But, but what position does that put you in? Usually, when we have that kind of heart, when we give, we go, Whew. Thank God that's over. You know, kind of a, oh, I got the courage and I did it. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and instead of seeing our giving as just one way that we enable the agency of this mission that we're involved in, just one way that we underwrite our efforts and our ventures and, and our hopes of being agents of God in this world, we, we, we tend to, at that point, go, well, I gave, I'm done. And it's, very, it's a very easy deception to, to forge upon yourself. Many of us have pledged to this building that's being erected behind us. And uh, uh, I, I was very far behind in my pledge, unlike many of you. There's been some recent... Um, serendipities in my life that I think exactly what God told me to pledge, I'm going to be able to fulfill in this first year. But many of you are way out in front of me. Are you aware that you were only 30% of the way through that three-year period, and you guys have already paid 70% of what you've pledged? That's amazing. That's amazing. And, and, and that doesn't include the initial gift that was given up front. You're, we're 70% fulfilled on that which we pledged over and above that. Yeah, am I making myself clear? So maybe some of you don't have the problems with this I have. You're more spiritually mature than your pastor. And I, I can appreciate that. 
But, but, but for those of us for whom this is a struggle, this is a huge insight. That if we can settle the question of where our loyalty totally lies, what kind of ingenuity would that free us up for? So it, it, it's really easy to deceive ourselves that, okay, I've pledged, and so somebody else is building the building because we're paying them to build the building. That's part of what our pledge is going to. And someday that building is going to be erected, and someday we will finish our pledge, and the building will be erected, and we'll be done. No, 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 no. Not, not, not at all if you are aware of whom you serve. If the motivation of your life is to do the most you possibly can in the smartest way you possibly can with what you have to leverage it in order to bless your master, then building a building is just the beginning. See, that's just the kickstart to all that we might be able to do in ministry in that building to his glory. You follow me? When we have a... uh, a heart that's divided. We can so often see the venture done before it's even started. What would happen if, if we were as ingenious with our money for our master as this guy was with his money against his master? Wow. The second question is, are you going to be a sedated, resentful Giver of resignation. Well, I got that done. I gave the minimum. I'm in. God should be satisfied with me. I retire. I I back off. Or are we going to be someone with shrewd, enterprising resolve for which our giving is just a part of the picture? Uh, Does that guy look shrewd to you? I think he looks shrewd. He's engaged. He's thinking. He's already figured out how to make more than anybody else in that room. He's shrewd. Can you see that? How often do we get in that state of mind about the things that we can do with God and for God? Next slide, please. Uh, which, Which are you, the dull dog or the cunning cat? Can you see those expressions up there? Now, now, they're both looking ahead with their master. But they've got a completely different spirit about how they're looking into the future, don't they? The dull dog or the... Next slide. This, this is the church of multiplication in Tabga, Galilee. There, there's a church there today, that church, that's right on the shores of Lake Galilee. And as you go in the church, uh, the church of the multiplication, you'll see under the altar up front... This ancient mosaic from the first century, I think it is, that that's, was uncovered under the floor of this ancient church. And many believe that a church was erected there because that was the very spot where an event historically happened. And that event would be what? The story of the fishes and the loaves. So, so here he is, the lad, and he's bringing... He's bringing uh, his basket of two fish and five loaves. And he's giving it to Jesus. And nobody else has anything to share with him. This is his only provision for lunch. 
Vandekamp fish sticks. No, I mean, this, this, is, this is his only provision for lunch, right? And uh, it's always struck me as a little bit odd. What, what would have been the reasonable thing to do? If, if, if you wanted to both bless the master and take care of yourself, I, I would have kept one fish in my basket and I would have given Jesus one. That's 50%. That's five times a tithe. He ought to be satisfied with that. Right? I, I, I would have given him one loaf, two loaf. He's Jesus. I might give him three loaves and just keep two for myself. But, but here's this kid that puts everything in his basket in the Lord's basket. What's going on with that thinking? And I wonder if it's this. I wonder if he had overheard Jesus' conversation about how that he wanted the disciples to give them something to eat. I wonder if he had noticed what happens when things that are in our hands get in the hands of the Savior and of the Master. I wonder if even more than all the other disciples, if this young boy was waiting for God to do something. So what are you going to do? If you have hopes that God can bless something that you have and multiply it, do something more with it than you could ever do with yourself. What basket is going to be your minimum and what basket is going to be your maximum? Are you with me? He took both fish, all five loaves, and said, Jesus, it's in your basket. You do your thing. If God's going to multiply it, how much do we want to put in his hands? The minimal or the maximum? If we're really believing and trusting in the master, won't we be those that not only give all that we can give, but do all that we can with it? We won't be just giving to appease our guilt or, 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 or giving to appease a, a greedy God, a, a God that seems to forever and ever step over into the boundaries of our own life and call something from us. We'll own it as our stewardship, as our ministry, as our venture, as our opportunity. Ask that boy, why all five loaves? Why both fish? If we can turn our money into greater things or lesser things, how much of what we have would we want to make available for the greater things in Jesus' basket? Isn't that the wonderful thing about money? And why it is such a seductive uh, power for us. You, You know, money promises almost everything that God promises Security, influence.
comfort for our soul? It can become a, 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 a warring loyalty because of the way it can seduce our own hearts. Or it can be claimed as a tool for, for higher purposes. You can turn money into about anything. You can turn money into a, a wonderful night out with your spouse. You can turn money, money into a good meal. You can turn money into a goat that sustains a family in Africa. You can turn money into a new paint job. Or you can turn money into a paid tuition bill. You can turn money into about anything. That's the wonderful thing about money. So, if we know who our master is, how do we make the most of it? That's the question. How can we get freed up to be these kinds of shrewd servants that the Lord here is encouraging? Truth is, we can turn money into ministry. Some of our money is providing curriculum for the teachers this morning that are preaching the principles and teaching the principles of Christ to our kids. Money turns agendas into reality and, 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 and home teams. Is, it provides for computers and ways to, to pull that off. You can turn money into about anything. You can turn money into ministry. And, and, and it's not that you can manipulate it and control it. It's really like a casting of seed that you hope produces a bumper crop. And it depends on where it falls and to whom it falls. And somehow in God's economy, he always makes more of it than we could ever make of it ourselves. Which do you think becomes more? The corn that you eat or the corn that you plant? It's just the way it tends to function. Somewhere somebody bought some Gideon Bibles. Any of you all ever done that? You, you, the Gideon guy comes, you know, and you think, oh, I got an extra 20 today. I'll help the Gideons. They're good guys. They put Bibles everywhere. That's got to be a good thing. Somebody did that somewhere along the way. And there was a, a college student. He was at a Christian university not too long from here, but he himself would say he was far from being a Christian. He'd grown up in a Christian family, but he had never made the choice. And his fraternity was in trouble, and uh, uh, they were about to lose their charter. And so in order to win some grace with the president of the university, he decided, pagan that he was, that he would start a Bible study in his fraternity. He said it was pitiful. They got together the first night and all they, th they could think for, for, you know, to pray for was that nobody would get hurt when they got drunk that weekend at the frat party. You know, that, that's, it's a place to start. And uh, the sad thing was he didn't have a Bible. He didn't have a Bible. And it, lo and behold, that very week, he ran into someone that had a supply of Gideon Bibles. He got, you know, the little green one, the little pocket New Testament. He got that one, handed the others out to his guys. And he started his first Bible study. And he had always heard it kind of said this way in Sunday school classes. He thought he'd start there. Let's turn to the first book of the Bible. And they turned to Genesis and started reading. He said, wait, 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 something wrong with my Bible. Something, and, he, you know, he was in Matthew. 
pocket New Testament. He had no idea. And, uh, but once they got the Bible thing worked out, they, they began to hear a truth. Finally, they came to Ephesians 2. And that night when that was read, that particular fraternity boy heard truth that claimed his heart. Today's pastor of Life Church TV. I saw him just the other night. He was introducing someone who he now mentors in the ministry. His name is Stephen Furtick. You know, you can't always tell what the soil is that you're casting the seed into. Is it good soil? Is it going to produce like that? Is it going to produce more sparingly? Is it not going to produce at all? There's, there's, a, there's a looseness to God's economy that, that we can't control, but he invites us to be those who plant into it, who turn our money into ministry, who turn our, our money into changed lives. Ministry is a seed. Good soil lets it develop. Will we have seed to sow and will we be the workers that cultivate the harvest? You can turn money into ministry. You can turn money into changed lives. You can turn money into a changing heart. This is interesting. 1 Corinthians 2.9, that chapter I was talking about earlier Paul actually picks up the idea of how making a pledge can be something that even converts the covetousness of our own heart, that part of us that wants to hang on. For either he will hold to the one and despise the other. He he says that there's something about a pledge. It, it, It always pushes you at that point of flinch. When you trust. With a pledge, you come to a place each month where you have to decide who you're going to serve. And there's something about casting that vote again and again that that changes their heart. There's something about the thrill of watching God provide when we extend ourselves. It makes us trust Him even more, appreciate Him even more, want to venture even, even more. And somewhere along the way, that covetous, stingy heart learns to let go and start laughing at the goodness of God. God loves a cheerful, hilarious giver. We can turn money into a changed heart. We can turn money into ventures, really, in miracles. Not because of what we do with the money, but because of what God does with us when we've set the stage for all kind of ministry to happen in our midst. Finally, we can turn money into eternal friends and eternal rewards One of the fathers of the faith, Ambrose, said this. The only barns that never wear out are the bosoms of the poor and the houses of the widows and the mouths of the orphans. We, we, we can take temporal things like money I would be willing to bet that 
two years ago, whatever money you had, you don't even remember where it went. But I bet you remember, and I bet heaven will always remember, those times when you leveraged your money to bless someone else in need. These are the barns that never wear out. I wonder if someday, when God develops our heart to the point that we trust Him so fully that we are completely sold out, if only then we will have been at that place that we're released to this kind of shrewdness of what we can do. I hope not. I hope not. There was one, if you'll go one more slide. Remember this guy? Author Schindler. How many saw the movie? Rascal? Oh, man. At the beginning, he was all rascal. But somewhere along the way, something changed. Somewhere along the way, he learned that money was not the master that it promised it would be, but his money could do something far greater. And so all of these millions that he was... stashing away because of the war machine that he was running, uh, enslaving Jews in his, his plant, he started to realize that he could stockpile that money and actually buy their life of freedom from the ovens that were burning the Jews in the concentration camps. And it was almost as if he took the same shrewdness and applied it to a greater situation. And here in this place, I don't know if you can see it from there. Can you see the tears in his eyes? He's still thinking. He's still thinking. And now all the Jews that he could pay to get out of the country, that they're safe. They're out of the country. They've been gathered in Austria in, in, in some industrial plant. And, the, and they're safe now. He looks around and he sees a sea of people that his money set free. That his money really saved lives. And as he looks at the people, his eyes fill with tears. His eyes fill with tears because that shrewd mind is still working. What more could have I sold? What more could I have leveraged? What, what, what possible manipulation of the realities could I have contributed to in order to save one more life? And do you remember he, he looks down from his gaze past all those people. And he notices something that haunts him on his hand. It's a gold ring. And by now he's so obsessive. He, he can't even enjoy the, the great blessing that's before him. Now, now he looks at that ring and he, he turns to his assistant who had served him all those times. And helped him become that kind of shrewd manager for, for eternal ends. And he, and he looks at him and he says, the ring. The ring you never showed me. How, how could I... That's three. That's three lives. We, we could have gotten three out with that. At least two. We could have gotten at least two. At least two more could be alive. But I'm wearing a ring. I'm wearing a ring. What, what, what will be our regret someday when our hearts are completely released to call him master and Lord, we bow before him in that place in heaven where we look back over our shoulders and say, dang it. If only I'd been thinking, if only I'd been more shrewd, if only I'd been more engaged, if only I'd gotten past the lordship issue to work on the ingenuity issue. 
Who else could be with me here in heaven? Who else would be living with me and living with my Lord for all eternity? Who else could we have reached in that community back then? We were just going to Bible study Wednesday after Wednesday. We were just going to Bible study. What, what, what if I had invited Scott just one more time? What if I had invited uh, Larry just, just, just once more? Would he have come? Would he be here with me now? You, you see, when, you, when you're an agent of God, what greater purpose can you serve? This morning, as we consider our pledges for next year, ask yourself, who's my master, really? And maybe pray this morning, God, give me some of that ingenuity. Help me to be free to risk more for you, to trust you more, and to be a part of doing more with that to which I've entrusted you. See, I, I don't know what you have in your basket. Only you do. But, it, but in the next moment, you're going to decide how much of what's in my basket do I want to put in the Lord's basket. And this certainly isn't the only place to, or the only way to pour out his love in this world. But man, where else does the partnership multiply itself like it does in the church. The money's yours. But whose are you? We have a choice. Let's serve God. The praise team's going to come. And as they pray, if this morning you have a sense of what you want to do, there's a pledge card in your bulletin. You can fill it out, come forward, and as they play, you can put it in the basket. You may want to pray about it. You may not have had enough time to talk about it with others in your household that are a part of this decision with you. We honor that. We don't want to rush that. We want you to do what God calls you to do. Nothing more, nothing less. And so if today you're not ready to um, put your pledge card in with some of the rest of us, feel free to take the time that you need in order to do so. But we hope that we'll hear from you soon. So starting in 2017, we can get ingenious for what we do for God. We invite you to make your pledge this morning. Let's consider it now. Come as you will.